Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. As many of you know, I was born in December of 1963, so I shouldn't remember certain series that were on in the mid-60s, but this one I happen to remember, so indulge me for just a second. There was a great series that ran from 1964 until about 1968. It was called The Man from Uncle. By the way, you are listening to the On the Tape podcast. I am Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Danny Moses and Dan Nathan. In just a minute, Bob Elliott, the co founder, CEO, and CIO at Unlimited, will be joining us. I look forward to that conversation. But I mentioned The Man from Uncle, which, by the way, a great show with Robert Vaughn and David McCallum. David McCallum, who plays Ducky in NCIS, and Robert Vaughn, who was in the great movie The Magnificent Seven, a great sort of spy action type series. I mentioned that, Danny, because the man from Uncle, I'm about to say Uncle from this market, which just continues to grind higher. Now, I'm not at that point yet, but I am almost ready to tap out here, Danny Moses. Uncle Guy. I hear you. And we were here last week and I was being sarcastic and I was putting a bullish hat on to be like, all right, if I have a bullish hat on, what things do I see happening? One of them was that the Russell would start to catch up to the S&P as far as, and it came off the deck. And it's not bad to see because at least some of the value stocks are showing some form of life, right? And we continue to trade on what's going to happen next week, which is because Fed fund futures. I mean, you just overlay them to the S&P in terms of economic data that comes out or what was Fed speak. I know we're now in a quiet period. I'm looking ahead to next week and all this is just noise. And I did also say last week that the chase begets the chase. And I really think that's all really that's happening here. And it can end in an hour, a day or a week. But think about what we have lined up next week. Okay. We have the CPI print on Tuesday the Fed meeting on Wednesday with their meaningless dot plot that's out there. And you also have something very interesting. It's the Morgan Stanley Financial Services Conference. And from a timing perspective, you're going to get all the big boys that are going to be there. That's going to give you a preview probably of the second quarter where things are, because it's not hard to model the financial company in real time. So that'll be really interesting, I think. So a lot is coming here. And then you had this kind of surprise, not surprise, but Bank of Canada 
which may be looking a lot like we're going to be looking as far as a pause and then go back to work here. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a big week. Not a lot of earnings in the past week. There are some we're going to talk about later here, but more of the same here. What is it going to take to turn the momentum or kind of the mindset of people? I'm not sure, but I don't think it's going to take a lot. Yeah. And so this week is a tough one here. We're recording this Thursday into the close. We have an S&P that is up 12% of the year. We have a NASDAQ 100 that's up nearly 32% on the year. And we've been highlighting the relative weakness of small caps. And obviously we know there's a whole heck of a lot of these regional banks and smaller financials that, that have been in there. And if you think about just the interest rate increase that we've had and just the lag effect that you might see on different parts of the economy, it's going to be first felt in the Russell. I do think it's interesting though, and we've been to your point, Danny, about your bullish hat here, the Russell's had a week, it's up nearly 3% and it just looks like it wants to break out. So if you were the mindset in late 2021, where the Russell 2000 couldn't get out of its own way and actually led to the downside before the S&P had topped out, if you're looking at the price action this week, you might start thinking about the other way, right? And so it's a tough one here, man. And so guy, like when you use the term, I might tap out, I might say, uncle, we have a VIX that's 13 and a half. Okay. We haven't seen that in a very long time. We're seeing volatility, at least in the treasury market has been tamped down a bit. We were tracking that move index, right? And so like a lot of the things that might cause people to basically pay attention to potential headwinds, they seem to have abated. Now, all of this to your point, Danny, as we head into a much anticipated Fed meeting. Now, granted, the pace in which we were raising interest rates last year, or the Fed was, they might pause, they might never raise again, for all we know. But the worst case scenario is they raise 25 basis points. And I guess what the stock market is telling us right here, they're okay with the Fed funds at five or five and a quarter percent. Is it a hawkish pause or a dovish raise? That's what, like whatever it's going to look like from there. Bank of Canada, Danny, I want to just harp on that for a second because that absolutely was a surprise. It caught the market a bit off guard. And there's a school of thought out there that suggests maybe our Federal Reserve should start doing the same thing. They telegraph so many things. There are people writing about this now where maybe they shouldn't be as transparent as they've been historically. And maybe what this market needs is some shock and awe. Thoughts about that? Last hike was in January. They weren't expected to go again, but then inflation unexpectedly went higher. The print right before, sim similar to what might happen here on Tuesday. But here's the thing. So we know that the CPI comps for June and July that are coming, which are the May and June reading, are easier comp, so to yeah. speak, right? So we're going to see a 0.4 type number or a 4.2% year over year. We talked about that on the show for the last few weeks, actually. So in that setup, if you're a macro and you're trying to play Q, you're like, okay, that's going to look dovish, right? That's not going to give the Fed enough. We're now in the course of today, just on Fed fund futures during the course of the day, we went at some point today to a 35% chance that they're going to raise. On, and we're back as I'm sitting here, 26 or 27%, this thing's moving around. And now you still have 100 basis points of cuts by June, July next year. So over the next year, those are getting slightly pushed out. But again, let's say what it is. People want to craft a soft landing scenario. The setup is there. And the other thing I'll say is that one of the fears was, and we talked about this after the debt ceiling was resolved, is that the basically filling back up the coffers of the treasury, what that's going to look like. They're starting to issue tens and hundreds of billions of dollars worth of securities. Again, I think people extract information on a minute by minute daily basis and don't take a step back and look at the bigger picture and what it might mean. It's just supply and demand. At the end of the day, this market has always been about liquidity. It was about liquidity from 2009 to 2021 when the Fed basically indicated QT and started raising rates soon after. That's really what it is here. Now, there's a lot of liquidity flashing around on the market, and it's actually healthy 
to see money move around into some of the small caps. I'll be honest with you. That's that to me is a much better place to put your money. Now, it's not necessarily coming at the expense of kind of the big boys, which have flattened out here when Apple came out with that scuba mask last week and that thing that was obviously a high there. I know it's traded back down, selling the news thing, whatever. So that's not an unhealthy situation. And the most bullish thing that I can think of is that what we were doing for the first three to four months of this year until recently is just bounce along and grow into a multiple and have a dull market, which to me was about as bullish as it could get. I wasn't expecting this lift, but here we are. And again, I'll say it is we, every day that goes by in June is like it was in January. Yeah. And if you're missing, you're screwed. That's it. It's that simple to me. I think depending on what you read, it's somewhere between 1.3 and $1.5 trillion the treasury needs to raise between now and the end of the year. That's going to drain some liquidity from someplace because they're not buying those bond issuances themselves. I don't think the market's fully comprehending what that means. And that's not an insignificant number over a pretty finite period of time. I'm just trying to think about all the things that where it could be wrong. And when I joked half jokingly that the debt ceiling has no ceiling until January, 2025, people just want to borrow now and figure it out later. You, no one cares. Like we're in that moral hazard period. We've been there now for 13 years. That's a big number. We're talking, I'm not saying they're going to go to 40 trillion. What I'm saying is there are no limits. So as things get hair and you want to bail out banks, no one has to get approval anymore, Dan, in terms yeah. of these programs. And that to me may be a very bullish thing for the stock market, and, but it's inflationary. All this stuff will rehash inflation. So the more that we bail out, the more that we print to take care of problems, that's inflationary. And that becomes self-defeating because that means the Fed will not be cutting. It means the Fed will continue to raise. And that's dangerous. You're going to pay for it one way or another. The stock market, though, is screaming that they're okay. We've finally normalized rates for all of those folks who've been screaming for 14 years about ZERP and how it was going to cause runaway inflation, okay? We finally have the inflation. And Guy, again, I've said this again and again, Dan, before we ever met you, Guy used to say this on the desk of Fast Money almost nightly. You mean when you were bullish before I ruined you? Yeah. The trolls on Twitter would tell you that my first appearance on CNBC, I think was the first or second week in April of 2009. And people would tell you that I've been short the market since then. I'm still here, people. So I haven't really Although you've short. lost a lot of weight. You're oh, actually Oh, we're going to hit that. That's okay. the hashtag row body. We're going to hit that in a little bit here. Again, the stock market is saying we're okay with higher interest rates, especially with where inflation is. And maybe everybody's actually basically what Guy had been saying, that inflation is here, it's just not measured properly and it's in all the wrong places. I think that's what you said for an awful long time, Guy, and maybe that's how rates stay higher for longer. Maybe that was a generational low. I like to take the other side when I hear generational highs or lows, but Runaway train is never coming back. Name that band, Guy. Sometimes you sing, it sounds great. That yeah. was not one of those All times. All right, very Tell good. Continue. That was Soul Asylum. Danny mentioned the Russell, and he's right to bring it up. It has clearly bounced. So here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, if you look at the Russell as measured by the IWM, the all-time high was made back, not coincidentally, in November of 2021. I think it was north of 240. Right now, as we're sitting here, the IWM is trading about 186. I mentioned that because it has bounced off the lows but you're running up into some resistance. So for you technicians out there, go back to August of last year, we topped out right around 200 and failed. We subsequently traded back up to 200 in February of this year and failed. That's gonna be huge resistance. And I would say this, Danny and Dan, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, I would like to think that the Russell bounce is predicated on the economy doing better and these smaller companies in a better spot. And reality suggests this Russell bounce is nothing more than these regional banks getting off the mat. Now, 
I guess that's okay. The problem, of course, is I think, Danny, there's another shooter drop here on the regional bank front. So yes, this can continue to go higher in absence of bad news. The problem is I think there's bad news coming. Yeah, that's where you're hiding. That's not a great hiding place. The one thing I like about it is when value starts to outperform growth, that to me makes sense and kind of what we're looking at overall. So like I said before, I think we have a lot of stuff that's going to come out that's going to affect the banks over the next week, not just the Fed, but this Morgan Stanley Financial Services Conference. And the higher the rates stay here and remove higher, the marks are still there for these banks. That hasn't changed. And the loan portfolios aren't getting any better. The used car prices, which is good for inflation coming down, are finally starting to drop, right? You had Citizens Financial pull out of the auto lending space, the indirect auto lending space. They just announced it. You have people pulling liquidity. So we continue to see liquidity get pulled from the market. More bankruptcies every single day in terms of commercial real estate. I think it's always what's right in front of people. These large elephants are all over the place, but no one really cares because yeah. they want to make money right now. It's immediate. I can say this market has been about immediate gratification for a long time. And listen, it is what it is. Yeah. And it's interesting. So today's, again, it's Thursday. On Wednesday, I thought it was really interesting price action across the board. Some of the things that helped get us here, like some of the largest names in the market that are a huge part of basically the performance that we've seen, the S&P and the NASDAQ, got absolutely creamed yesterday while the S&P was okay on Wednesday. And so it's interesting. I, I was looking like NVIDIA was down 3%. Microsoft was down 3%. Alphabet was down 3%. Amazon was down 3%. Meta was out. And I was out of pocket all day long. And I pulled up my fax set machine at sometime five or six o'clock. I talked to Guy a little bit. He explained it very simply. It was just a rotation. We saw some energy names, some industrials were doing really well. So it's interesting now, Thursday into the close, I'm looking at Google Alphabet is down on the day. So it was down 3% yesterday or a little more, and it's down on the day. Microsoft is up 60 basis points after being down 3%. So some of these names, I throw Meta in there also, are not making back what they lost yesterday. These are all stocks that were near 52-week highs, up a whole heck of a lot. I think that's interesting to track that, okay? Because we know the concentration of those big names even if we do have a broadening out of the rally, okay, all those other sectors are much smaller. I want to make one point here, okay? So our main man, John Butters, who's the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet, he has out today, this would be Friday as you're listening to this, his earnings insight blog. And he's talking about what is expected of the contribution of those major tech names in Q4. Now, we know right now, S&P earnings Q4 estimates or Q4 of 2023. Oh, okay. They're huge contributors, okay? So he has this, so just really quickly, indulge me for a second. While analysts expect the S&P 500 earnings to decline by 6.4% for Q2, they predict earnings growth of 8.2% for Q4. And I think this is really interesting because he talks about Amazon, Meta, Google, NVIDIA are all expected to be the largest contributors to earnings growth for Q4. Excluding those four companies, the estimated earnings growth for Q4 of the S&P 500 falls to 4.3% from 8.2%. And so here's the point. I want to attach a couple things right here, okay? Expectations for those names are huge contributors to S&P earnings growth for Q4. They're going to make up for a lot of the weakness in Q1 and Q2. But the price performance has already discounted all of that expectation. Yep. Now, you know, so when you look at how the multiples have been stretched, how far these stocks have run, that doesn't make guy for a great scenario as we head into, let's say the second half of this year, what expectations are and where you're expected to get all of this outperformance from both earnings and price perspective. 
No, I agree with that. And people will say, and listen, maybe correctly that you're being dogmatic guy. You're so dug in here on your bare thesis. What's going to change your mind? What's going to make you say uncle? And it would be logical to suggest that the price in and of itself will do that. But the problem I have is the higher the price goes, almost the more bearish I get because it's not based on anything other than exactly that. Just money flows and just euphoria out there. And to what Danny's been saying, the chase begets the chase. Of course, the problem is when the chase ends and everybody's looking for the door, things go down a lot faster than they go up. And nothing to me has structurally changed. If anything, things have structurally gotten worse. And I continue, Danny, to go back to the gold market. And I'm reading over and over again, the Chinese continue to buy gold. In 2022, central banks bought a record amount of gold, 71 tons of gold, They'd never bought that much before. We're seemingly on pace again. The price suggested nothing's going on, but gold's still in this pretty well-defined uptrend, actually having a decent week as we're sitting here. So I think the gold market is trying to tell you something. And I've said this for a while. I think the gold market and central banks are trying to hedge their own futility by buying gold. So yes, the stock market looks great. Obviously, the Russell getting off the mat. The NASDAQ chart looks fantastic off to the races. But none of this move higher over the last four or five months, again, just my opinion, has been based on fundamentals. It's all based on hopium and multiple expansion, which is unsustainable, Danny. Let me go back to Dan's comments on this Q4 mental gymnastics. So in the immortal words of Judge Chamberlain Haller, do you know who that is, Guy? Wasn't he in, in that movie that was, with Rodney no, Dangerfield? No, it was my cousin Vinny. That is a lucid, intelligent, thought-out objection. Overruled. Because at the end of the day, no one gives a shit right now. And Butters is right. The math is there. No one cares right yeah. now. And so throw it out the window. And when it matters, it's going to matter. And when this data lines up, and I'll get to the gold in a second, when the data lines up, it's not going to be pretty because the logical thing will be when it does turn. And listen, jobless claims today, and I don't like to trade week by week because some weeks they're better. But overall, the trend is not your friend here. Consumers extended. I keep looking at these debt numbers for the consumer. And the rate that they're paying, there, guys, there is no way out of this. And I get these credit card things as people get in the mail, and I don't have to carry a balance yet, although if I stay short the market, I will have to soon, offering you these balance transfer yeah. things. And by the way, the balance transfers used to be 0.0% for six months. Read the fine print now. You're paying 5% to transfer anything with an APR that starts in four months. They think they're going to outwit. They're 20, you know, they're 20 to, plus 20 percent. Plus percent. Yeah. My point is that back in the day of low rates, even when the economy was slowing, that's what you would get. When we talk about the impact of rate cutting on mortgage resetting, we're so far from that on rate cutting of what you could look for credit card balances. There's no one that's going to come to the rescue. If you're carrying these credit card balances and they're mounting, you're looking at the data from the federal government. If the Fed cuts rates, they're going to go from 13.99 to 13.50. It's not going to be a big enough difference. And that's to me is the scary part here. By the way, guy, we have a lot to get into here that is, is not related to this. I want to shift, but I do want to say coming up, at the end of the show is our Belmont picks. When I say our, my Belmont picks, that we're going to end this triple crown here. So you failed to mention that at the outset. So people need to hang around for that, buddy. I was going to tease it at some point, but you beat me to that. I know people are sitting there at the edge of their seat waiting for your Belmont picks, saying to themselves, his horses are still running or trying to finish both the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. He has to be Keep good laughing. in Belmont stakes, Keep which laughing. by the way, is the longest of the three. You just said at the edge of their seats. You know who's sitting easier on a seat these days, guy? This guy. Why? Because you've lost so much weight? 
You are sitting easier. You're so sitting. we listen. We have a little housekeeping. This is going to be a tease. It'll be a little housekeeping. We're going to do it all in one right here. Yeah. So we have a new partner at the Rich Russell Media family. Get out of here. It's called Roe. Okay. You might know them as Roman. They've been advertising on the TV. Our friend Zach, who is the CEO, founder of the company, you've probably seen his ads for years. Have you seen them? I know oh, that yeah. you're particularly interested. Yeah. So it started not, as yeah. a, a direct to consumer e company. They've grown it. They've gone into. Well, Don't need the, it yet. Nope. There okay. you go. Okay. Keep but there's going. some other things. And let me just tell you something. Guy, you and I have been doing some ads. We've been talking about some stuff here. I joined their Row Body program four months ago. I think the S&P has been taking that product. Keep going. Sorry. No, that's a different product. There. Okay. okay. But right. so this thing, I got to tell you guys. So a lot of people have asked me because you see me on CNBC and it's just gone over the course of this year. So I've dropped 30 pounds, 30 pounds in four months. I joined the program. What they do is they basically set you up with a U.S. registered healthcare professional. That is a doctor. You do all of this stuff online. It's a telehealth program. They sent me a blood test. I sent it back to them. It was really easy to do. They prescribed me this medicine. Okay, you've heard about them. Everybody's talking about these things. Ozempic, Govi, they've been approved by the FDA for weight loss. I was actually prescribed it for pre-diabetic things. I turned 50 last year, okay? I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, sleep apnea. I'm 6'2". I was 226 pounds um, in January. I am now 196 by taking this, working with their life coaching. I have a connected scale. I'm on there basically every day on their app going through all this process here. And I just got to say this. For me, I needed to change my life. I needed to get some things going. I have a pretty active lifestyle. I'm out and about. I travel a lot, all that sort of stuff. And this has just done it. So when we talked about adding some other sponsors, this was just such a logical sort of choice. And for us, I got to tell you something. I use this product. It's absolutely amazing. And I just wanted really our people to know about it because I've gotten a lot of questions from the weight front, but it's also not just the weight. I mean, for me, it was about like just broader health. At 50 years old, I want to live a nice long life. And I had to get some of those other things in check. And Robotics helped me do that. It's a lifestyle choice and good for you. Dan, what do they call those things? Like when you have notes in the show notes, they call them show notes. Yeah. I've asked that before. Yeah. Do they have any Remember, bullish pills? Should write it down. We have an offer to our listeners. We'll put it in the show notes in terms of what's going on at Row. And I know I'm excited as well as Danny is, but Danny, fortunately, Danny's a sexy man at a perfect weight that does oh, not yeah. require any of their products. I, on the other hand, am probably a perfect client for them. I think you're, for a number of products guy, you might be at a demo that might be a good fit. We'll, they have we'll, hair, stuff for hair, they have for, yep. stuff for ED and yep. stuff for weight. Yeah. Am I missing and they, anything? Listen, and they have a lot of other stuff. So right. it, it's a great product. It's ro.co slash tape. There you go. All right. Go check it out, people. Very good. All right. Somebody go. that probably does not require products because he's at the pinnacle of what we do for a living is a guy named Stan, as I've mentioned, Druckenmiller. And he said earlier this week, Danny, that he could see corporate profits down 20 to 30%. And he's worried about credit tightening over the next six to nine months. He's saying all the things that we've been saying for quite some time. And I think what he also said was the lag effect of 500 basis points of hikes has not been felt yet. So he's synthesizing a lot of the themes that we've been talking about, and he's putting it out there. Now, granted, he's been wrong in his career as well. So there's a very good possibility that this thesis is wrong as well. But I will tell you, historically, if you want to bet on a horse, which you're going to do in a few minutes, he's not a bad person to put some money behind Danny Moses. So I love listening to Stanley. 
especially when I agree with him. And he's right. And eventually cards speak and the earnings are going to matter. And he's saying that because he knows at some point that they are going to matter. And so he's seen a lot of these cycles. He was out a month ago or so talking about this as well, kind of that it's not sustainable. There's a lot of comparisons to 2000. And every day that goes by, I was telling to someone this morning, the more and more comparable it is to 2000 in the sense of, I remember January, February, and March of 2000, just ignore all the fundamentals. It's going to be fine. And I think this is actually a little bit worse because when you think about all the liquidity that has been put into the market that needs to be taken out over a period of time, whether the Fed ever actually does anything, I don't know. But fundamentally, there is no argument you're going to make to me that this tape should go up from here. So I listen to all that. But the guy is a legendary investor. And then I look at a part of the same conversation, guys. Okay. He said, AI could be as innovative as the internet. Okay. We all know that. We've heard that again and again. Okay. So he said this at a Bloomberg Invest conference. If I'm right on AI, I could own NVIDIA for two or three more years. Okay. So just riddle me this, Batman. Okay. I don't know how you could say everything that he did about the macro and then say that thing. It wants to be like, cool. I, I know, but to me, that makes no sense. And the one thing I'd say is like, when you look at a guy like this, who's made billions and billions of dollars, okay, investing large sums of institutional money or whatever, say everything that he said about the macro and say that about one stock. I discount everything that he has to say about fair. that one stock. No, my point uh, is yeah. because he can hit a button and he can be out of that one stock. He can't hit a button and change his entire macro thesis. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying about that? So for me, I think there's a lot of people out there who've heard Steve Cohen say this, who've heard Tepper say this, who've seen Druckenmiller say this or whatever about AI, but understand one stock can be liquidated in a half a moment, and especially if you're up hundred percent in two months on the thing. Listen, there's a lot of insider sales I was going to mention on NVIDIA. Look what's going on. The three, three insiders have sold stocks since that print, just FYI. What's out there? Listen, he's, I, whether he's long NVIDIA or not, I, I don't know if he said he was, he's definitely he not he was. shorted. Yeah. He's definitely not. I think not being, <laughs> I think not being shorted is effectively being long it, in my opinion, because you're not going to take a side, but you're going to respect the move that it's made. What does he gain by saying, Dan, I would not own NVIDIA at these prices. Some people have come out and said that. What does he gain from that? You think he gets credibility from- No, but I, I just don't know what he gains by, at this point, we hadn't heard him say the word NVIDIA about a month ago. And I look at this thing, we just talked about the potential pull forward. I'm getting yeah. my balls blown in on this one. And yeah. obviously in Tesla too now, that's had this crazy run. It's up 10% of the week. I'm just- Is so that, it? Yeah. So I just actually, I, I was really light in my short of this stock. Yeah. And today on Thursday, I literally just started laying into it again, okay? Yeah. Thinking about July expiration is my target here. Yeah. But my point is that NVIDIA gap will be filled at some point, maybe sooner than many people think. And if everybody is in this thing together because they feel really confident about all these billionaire hedge fund managers who basically give them the okay here because they can look up, think about two or three years out of AI innovation, it's gonna be bigger than the internet. I'm saying, why don't we want to take the other side of that, people? If so, I don't know. Thoughts on that guy? Because again, like to me, I think that point about this big bearish macro view versus a bullish view on one name that makes no sense from a fundamental standpoint that might have pulled forward a lot of the sentiment in this one thesis around AI, it just seems like it's at odds with each other. Yeah. And and maybe I'm cherry picking because I chose obviously not to focus as much on his NVIDIA point. And I don't know the context that he was answered the question or where NVIDIA came from, but I understand what you're saying. In terms of single stocks, 
you can change your mind extraordinarily quickly as you can in the broader market. Of course, the problem is he has an underlying thesis that I think takes a lot longer to play out than just being long or short in video. I'll just throw that out there. But it's funny, Dan, I find myself thinking of Danny Moses at the strangest times. I won't get into oh great detail here, but I thought of you a number of times because over the course of this week, we had, and I want you to talk about all of these things in no particular order. We had Carvana, which is just out of control. That's a Danny Moses thing. GameStop, which is just an unmitigated disaster. And then Binance Coinbase. This is all your wheelhouse. And they all seemingly took place in the course of about a 48-hour period, Danny Moses. <laughs> yeah, and one of the other thing we'll talk about, which is my, one of my heroes, Joe Saluzzi, who will be on our podcast in a few weeks, basically writing a white paper and talking about how the DTCC, I rotted on that, was selling people's data and they canceled yeah, one did. of the programs. But we'll talk about that in a second. So let's go with my favorite GameStop real quick. So they reported earnings last night and it's, they canceled the conference call. The CEO was fired without cause, they said later, and they put out their 10Q and they have not put out anything since then. Yeah. GameStop just reported Q124 because they're on the off quarter because it's a retailer. And they just had a profitable Q4, right? Which is their biggest sales quarter. It's the Christmas shopping, whatever. Everything was going great. They said they were going to have a few more restructuring costs. They had it in the quarter. Bang. CEO gets fired. Ryan Cohen comes in as now as executive chairman, right? No other information other than a tweet from Ryan Cohen, which says, not Furlong, which I guess is mocking the CEO, Matt Furlong. Stock went from 17 last quarter on a profitable quarter to kind of 25, 26. Amazingly, last night, after hours, when the first headline came across, Ryan Cohen to become executive chairman. Stock traded up from kind of 26 to 29. And then when it said, CEO fired, and then we're not having a conference call tonight to talk about our quarter. Stock traded down to 20. It's hanging above there right now. But my point is that, guys, if you're in this thing still, what are you doing? Because they're going to be losing money now probably for the rest of the year. So I'm waiting to see what that guidance is going to be. Fast forward to Carvana, which, remember, was over $300 stock. We began talking about it a few years ago. Went down to single digits. It's now made its way. Dan, where you're on the fact set machine north of 20 bucks here. Carvana today, they put out a preview to a conference where they're going to be appearing and said that their, their adjusted EBITDA would be 50 million and they think they've started to turn the corner and they've cut costs. People, they have $8.7 billion worth of debt, I think still at this point. And so they still have a long way to go here. But again, you see these these rallies, short covering go on in these names. And so I'm not trading, I'm not Big involved short interest, in that. Like 50% short interest. Yeah, so the stock it, was three and a half bucks in December and here it is at $25-ish. And to your point, it's got a four and a half billion dollar market cap. It's got nine billion dollars in debt. In this type of economy, we're going to go into. Do you, and when I just talked about used car prices are now dropping, I'm not going to short the stock here, but that's just noise. In the last several days, the SEC came out and sued Binance and Coinbase. And the irony to me, this obviously was a long time coming. We know it's there, and I've all, always argued that the true crypto people, the believers, want to thrive on no regulation, but crave it deep down because they want this thing validated. Yet. Gary Gensler, you can shit on him all you want, but let me tell you right now, he protected a lot of investors from these tokens for the last year, right? A lot of these lending products that were attached to these cryptos shut down a lot of these other kind of one-off exchanges. Here he comes and saying, listen, it's very simple. I think these are securities, the way that they're treated. And these people, Binance and Coinbase, and Coinbase specifically say, no, we don't think it is, and we're just gonna keep trading. So now we're gonna go into a legal fight, but you tell me how Coinbase, which trades what multiple of book value here, and they keep losing money, why would you own that stock here? To me, it's impossible. And then if you're a crypto believer, you start to think about where am I housing my crypto? What am I going to do? It's becoming, it's going to become very difficult. I'm surprised how well crypto has held. And I'm not going to 
shit on crypto here. I always make a point to say, listen, I wasn't a believer at a thousand yep. on Bitcoin. It is what it is. But structurally, you would want this. Ian Armstrong, the CEO, founder of Coinbase, he's going to fight. So this is really interesting. This is a great article no choice. that was in the information. It was the best and worst case scenarios for Coinbase. We'll put it in the show notes by Aiden Ryan. And so I just want to read this one paragraph. The SEC alleges that Coinbase has been operating an unregistered securities exchange broker and clearinghouse and buying those functions into one platform to register with the regulator. Coinbase would likely have to separate those operations mirroring the structure of traditional financial services. The crypto exchanges argue that it's impractical or even impossible for crypto firms to do so because blockchain technology has made these kinds of financial intermediaries irrelevant. So it's really interesting when you think about it because it is at the core of the ethos of why somebody would own one of these blockchain-based assets. And so it's interesting. It almost seems like an existential fight guy that Coinbase has to fight. These guys have been working with regulators for a while, right? And there's certain things that they draw a line in the sand on. I think that point, though, that was just made in that information article is a really important one. And I think it really does. The rest of the industry here in the U.S. hinges on that. As the regulators, as Gensler's come in, a lot of innovation in the space has gone overseas. And I think that is also one of the major criticisms about the way we have approached regulation here is that we've driven innovation out, where if you look at innovation over the last 30 years, let's say pre-blockchain sort of stuff, it has actually had a very strong foothold in the U.S. And some could argue with what happened in social media and all this other stuff that we didn't do a good enough job. I think when he came in, Gensler, I think he was optimistic that he could work with yeah. the cryptocurrencies. And then all these bad actors were all over the place. I won't go through the list of companies which have already shut down. I think it's very clear that CZ at Binance is a bad actor at yeah. this point. I mean, I think it's very clear. Matt Levine a, from Bloomberg had a great note on this. There's yeah. two ways to get sued by the SEC. One, to run an unregulated securities exchange, which they claim that, let's say, Coinbase, the largest exchange here in the U.S. is doing. Or you could be like FTX and you could do the similar thing, but you could actually just rob all your customers. Coinbase knows as a regulated entity in that capacity Talk about losing money. They can't make money now. Yeah. They're regulated. The amount of capital you should have, what you would have to do. And again, this is what you want to see as a consumer. You want to, over a long period of time, again, it's not what crypto was built upon. That's the irony. It was always built upon unregulated. You can't touch us. But people, you can't have it both ways. And I truly believe Ginsler's not out to kill the crypto industry. He's out to protect the investor. As much as I rip on him on a lot of the things that he does, believe me, I think he has good intent here. It's going to come at a cost for some people. But People, just take your time and read these complaints. That When you see an argument from Armstrong about, oh, we went public, we got the blessing of the SEC. No, you didn't. You just listed the company. They never condoned your offering, per se. You listed it. It's very different than an IPO. Anyway, I won't go into that, guy. But I think, listen, clean this thing up. If crypto's here to stay, which I believe it is, this is what you want to see in some form or fashion. Earlier this week, I think Kathy Wood announced she increased her stake in Coinbase on a oh, dip. I think the stock actually traded down to 47 and change earlier this week. It's As we're sitting here now, it's either side of $54.5 or so. So it has had a bounce, but this has been a sideways to lower stock for a while. And if memory serves, Dan Nathan, this is one that Jim Chanos has been a skeptic on for some time. So we'll see. With all that said, I don't think it's an indictment of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin but I think some of these companies are challenged. So we'll see what happens. But I think your point, Danny, about regulation, what Gensler's trying to do is spot on, but there's no straight lines. There's going to be a painful way to get to the other side of this entire thing. So we'll see how it plays out. With all that said, 
Bitcoin continues to be under pressure and gold continues to show its stripes right now, Dan. And I think, as I said earlier, I think the gold market is trying to tell people some things. So before we get to your Belmont stakes picks, just real some quick thoughts on the gold market here. Yeah, I'm a buyer. I think, again, I realize it doesn't yield anything, blah, 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 all that stuff, but it's going to have its day. I keep accumulating on weakness. You can do it in a variety of products. I do it on the PHYS. If you think there's a short-term inflection where you can catch it, then you can get a little bit more aggressive and buy options on the GLD or some of these gold miner ETFs like NUGT are pretty volatile. I don't recommend them necessarily. But I listen, what's in front of us? Again, if you were long the stock market because you believe the Fed is done and we're going to start cutting and or whatever, then you have to like gold here because the only way out of this is to inflate assets. And if you're going to inflate assets out of here, give me one other thing other than gold. And Guy, your point about it being the physical being bought up that's out there. I don't know all the mechanics of that, but I'm a buyer on any weakness here. And I just don't see it staying below down here for long. And I think we'll be back north of 2000 soon. So. 50 years ago, an athlete captured the imaginations of sports fans, not only in the United States, but around the world. Of course, that athlete was a four-legged athlete with Steve Cawthon in the saddle, as they say, that athlete being the great secretariat, whose records probably, Danny, will never be broken, nor will some of your records ever be broken. But as we get into the weekend of the Belmont Stakes, a mile and a half journey around one of the largest tracks, if not the largest track in the world, I would like for you to handicap for our audience what you think will transpire in this epic race this Saturday afternoon. Yeah, there was once a great horse that won the Derby back in 1991 named Strike the Gold, just so we can go over that and get that out of the way. And by B. Giles Brophy, by the way, that horse did not win the Triple Crown. It came from dead last in that Kentucky Derby, if memory serves, to win and then it subsequently shit the bed. But I digress. So remember my pick in the derby time, I just tapped trice, it came up late or finished, I think, seventh, skipped the preakness. So remember, it's the son of Tappet. Tappet has produced four Belmont winners since 2014. And when you talk about the Belmont at a mile and a half, it's really important, right, that you look genetically into are these horses able to do it? And it matters a lot in kind of horses. So that is the two horse. He's currently three to one. I'll get back to him in a minute. You got this Archangelo that Javier Castellano is riding. He won the Peter Pan, granted not at this distance, which was a race at Belmont in May. So it's one on this track. He's eight to one. I'll get back to him. He also has the pedigree. He's the son of Arrogate, who won the Breeders' Cup Classic a few years ago. And ironically, its mother is the daughter of Tappet. So there is another connection. Now, Tappet used a lot of row products. He got around, but I'm just saying like from a- Was his mother a mother? <laughs> mother mother. So anyway- then you have Angel of Empire, which is the eight horse, so I like it, seven to two. And then you got this Forte, which was the favorite to win the Derby, got pulled out, missed both the Derby and the Preakness. It's an unknown. He's basically the favorite right now at five to two. That's Pletcher and Ortiz. I'm going to stay away from a five to two horse, and he hasn't run in a while, so I think he's going to come out a little bit stale. And then you got my boy, Jack Wolf at Starlight Racing with National Treasure that won the Preakness along with Saul Cumin. And they're going to be wearing the Starlight colors at this event. They alternated. They wore Cumin's colors and Preakness are going to wear it here. That's Johnny Velasquez, loves the track. That's Bob Baffert, that's five to one. So here's what I'm thinking, guy. I'm gonna take Tapid Trice to win this thing. It's currently three to one. And I think that I take that across to win place show. I then want to do an exacta with Tapid Trice, Archangelo, and National Treasure, right? Two, three, four. And then I'm gonna do a trifecta box. Now there's nine horses, guy, as of right now. So I'm gonna do a trifecta box, two, three, four, six. I gotta put Forte in there. And that's it. But take the two to win. I think it's Tapid Trice's time. Third time's a charm for me on the third leg 
of the Triple Ground Guy. Danny, I love it when you handicap. You are our resident handicapper. And by the way, as we sit here, the NFL season is probably 12 weeks away. So coming off a difficult campaign, Danny, I know you're raring to go for your season three in the league where they (laughs) play for pay. So start doing your homework. But when we come back, a conversation with Bob Elliott, the co-founder, the CEO, and the CIO of Unlimited. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, Their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. We are joined today by the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited. That's the Unlimited Funds. That would be Bob Elliott on Twitter. He is Bob Unlimited. You've probably seen him all over the FinTwit. That's where I first met him. Bob, welcome to On the Tape. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. All right. So, Bob, you and I, we first met last month through our good friends over there at First Mark Capital. They led your Series A round of Unlimited. We want to hear all about Unlimited. But I had been seeing you. Danny had been seeing you. Guy had been seeing you all over the FinTwit. As I said, starting last year or so, you started building a really good profile. And then I think that whole Bridgewater in your bio to some folks here. Talk to us a little bit about your background, how you just started popping up on the FinTwit. You created a really interesting company that is VC-backed, so we want to hear all about that. But let's hear a little bit about your journey through Bridgewater, how long you were there, and how it led you to where you are right now. I was at Bridgewater almost 15 years, and while I was there, did a bunch of different things, including running Ray Dalio's investment research team for a decade. I was responsible for a big portion of the overall portfolio, creating a wide variety of systematic strategies across all the different major asset classes and probably connects the work that you're seeing on Twitter. I also wrote pretty well-known Bridgewater Daily observations on a regular basis during my career there as well. What I was trying to do with Unlimited was take that experience and that understanding of how hedge funds work in the real world, how they manage money, and figure out a way to bring those sorts of return streams from the institutional investor community to the everyday investor. And that's really what Unlimited is all about, is bringing 
hedge fund style strategies to to the everyday investor. Now we've done it in the form of an ETF, which is pretty exciting because that also means it's a low cost structure, much lower cost than traditional hedge fund structures and also tax efficient. Folks who have bared the pain of investing in LP structures and the costs that exist with that. Our first product, HFND, has been out there for a little over six months. It's got 60 million bucks in it. It was the number one indie active ETF launch of 2022. And fortunately, thanks to the partnership with Firstmark and City Ventures, which we just announced our Series A, we'll be launching a suite of different hedge fund style strategies in that ETF wrapper that everyone will be able to go out and, and buy in their portfolios. So the days you were at Bridgewater, which I know you guys signed things you can't talk about, a lot of things that you did, but I would imagine being on the desk, you're trying to replicate that macro mindset. And if I look at kind of the makeup of the HFND, and I realize it's pretty live, it could be slightly stale, but I start to look at, I got the Vanguard Total World ETF. So how often are those decisions being made? What does the turnover look like? And is there an entire committee that kind of goes through this? Are you the guy? Yeah, my, my co-founder Bruce and I built a machine learning technology that basically leverages our experience as folks who have built proprietary investment strategies and in, across all sorts of different hedge fund styles over our careers and uses that and uses modern machine learning to basically infer what types of positions or exposures hedge funds have on at any point in time. And so you can think about what we're trying to do with the product is we're trying to create something akin to an index ETF, an index product that tracks the positioning of essentially the wisdom of the hedge fund crowd and how they're positioned in aggregate, all 3,000 managers, all $5 trillion in assets, put all those different strategies together into one product that basically gives you a multi-strategy or a more diversified portfolio of those managers and strategies over time should be more consistent. And that's really what in the holdings is really netting out all the 3,000 managers, all of their decisions, and what their effective exposure is as a result. Bob, when you think about the way individual investors, let's say self-directed investors, think about portfolio construction, a lot of investors like investing in single names. They like investing in themes. How should they think about a strategy like HFND? Because a lot of investors that I think that you suspect you'll have a lot of traction with don't really have access to these hedge fund sort of product. So what bucket should this be in their portfolios? Well, it all starts with looking at what kind of portfolio construction the most sophisticated asset managers in the world have. Look at institutions. What they do is about 50% of their capital in traditional liquid portfolios, like 60-40 or the equivalent. And they have about 50% of their portfolios in alternatives. And within that bucket, in terms of their overall portfolio, they typically have about 20% of their their assets allocated to hedge fund style strategies, a diversified set of them. And so that's the basic idea is this diversified alpha, sometimes how I like to describe it, has a role in a portfolio in terms of helping create a more consistent return stream. If you look at how hedge funds perform over time, they basically deliver returns, gross of fees that are equivalent to or slightly better than stocks with a lot less volatility if you look on a backward basis. And so that's really the role is to basically help improve the overall performance of the strategic portfolio. It's really a product for someone who is trying to build a portfolio that is likely to be persistent and reliable over time, that they don't have to worry about navigating through these challenging market environments. Let the hedge fund managers figure out exactly how to get positioned. You can buy the HFND ETF and get access to the, those types of exposures 
without having to actively manage yourself. Now, of course, some of the folks, I'm sure lots of the folks who are listening to this program are active, actively investing in various products and taking bets on markets. And for those folks, I think one of the things that's super useful about the HFND ETF is you can you could take a look at the underlying holdings at any point in time and see what are the insights that hedge fund managers are showing you, right? What do they think are a good value and a bad value and what's overvalued? What should go long and short? And we write on a monthly basis, a nice overview on our website, unlimitedfunds.com, where we go over basically the highlights of how hedge fund managers are positioned. And so if you're looking for trade ideas, if you're interested in triangulating your views on one of 60 asset markets that these guys are trading that we're using in HFND. Go take a look at it, download the holdings and check it out. You can definitely get some insights and some ideas from it. So there's a lag impact then from you can't see in real time what hedge funds are doing. So what is that lag in, lag time? And then also, this is not qualitative. It's all quantitative. So there's no say where you're, you and your team sit down and say, you know what? I think the dollar is actually going weaker in our estimation. You're not applying any of that. You're literally just using quantitative methods, not qualitative. So it's a fully systematic process using that return replication technology that we've developed. And the goal is to replicate the wisdom of the hedge fund crowd, which I think the most important thing to think about is hedge fund managers have shown over time that they are much better investors than just passive index investing. And the problem that they've had, the problem that most people have seen with them is that most people can't get access to those strategies. And the people who can, typically just the fees are too high, right? So I like to say hedge fund managers have a fee problem, not a strategy problem. And so one of the big things that we're doing with this product is because we're using technology to look over their shoulder, see what they're doing, we can charge a lot lower fee, 95 basis points instead of two and 20. And that is a much better outcome, right? Much of the strategy return goes to the investor when you have that much lower fee structure that's in place. And it's true that there is, we can't see what they're doing in, in, in an immediate sense, but we actually have a pretty good understanding in close to real time. There's daily information about hedge fund performance, which we use in our process. There's also the best in quality monthly returns, which we basically know within a few days into the subsequent month. We are maybe, we're a little bit behind, but if you think about all the benefits of lower tax structure, liquidity, transparency, and that lower fee point, those are real benefits relative to the modest delay in understanding what these funds are doing. So is there a plan then in the future for you guys to have a more subjective, qualitative ETF where you guys are actually making decisions with all the experience that you've had in your career? Is that on the horizon? Yeah, certainly something we're thinking about as a prospective product. I think I think this comes down to when trying to build ETFs or index products that are meant to be cornerstone strategies or investment allocations as part of someone's strategic portfolio, what you want to do is you want to build the most consistent return stream that you can. And I think it's really important to recognize that any one manager, any one person, even the best, and I'm telling you the best of the best are probably right in their trades like 57, 43, 55, 45 on any trade in any one month. And part of the way that you create that sort of consistent return stream over time is by diversification. It's the only free lunch in investing, right? It is diversification. And so part of what we want to do with these products is create that strategy, that manager diversification, in order to create a, a return stream that we expect to be more consistent than if you were just betting on my views or your views or somebody else's views or your own intuition. 
I'm, that's the goal. I'm sure this is on here somewhere, but what is the turnover then? Can it be very little for days at a time and then a lot over a few days at a time, depending on how the markets and these hedge funds are reacting? Yeah, that's exactly right. Is that we're always updating the positions when we get incremental return information. That means that the turnover that folks have seen since the product went live is, I'd call it modest. It has not experienced the same sort of extreme turnover that some of the multi-strategy mutual funds have. And part of the benefit of running in the CTF wrapper is that tax efficiency that some of those other products don't necessarily have in the mutual fund wrapper where you start to have to take those capital gains and losses in real time versus ETF. Like most ETFs, if you buy and hold it for a year, you just take the capital gains at the point in which you sell the product. So I'm glad that you said the very best are only right about 57% of the time. Because when you have a podcast, Bob, and you're on CNBC as frequently as we are, and you're talking every day on markets, man, only as good as your last comment out of your mouth. And I think you're probably going to learn that a little bit. You have your newsletter, you're on Twitter. I've seen you on CNBC and some other financial media. When you run a quantitative product, right, but you're making qualitative sometimes judgments into the media, sometimes people have a hard time connecting those two things. But let's talk a little bit about the data. Like one of the things that, again, it goes back to when I first started seeing you about a year ago when in, uh, on Twitter is I just saw people reposting your data. It wasn't you making huge proclamations about the market or this or whatever, but it was based on your experience in the markets and interpreting the data. Talk to me about and how it's been to build a following on Bintwit, obviously your newsletter, and I'm sure this was part of your process as you were building Unlimited, but just how important is that to what you're doing now? Because when you were at Bridgewater, probably nobody knew you. Your counterparties knew who you were, and that's by design in a way. And I also think it's interesting that it seems like every time I look up, maybe every week, Ray Dalio, the founder, obviously, of Bridgewater, and just so for some of our listeners who are not familiar, this is one of the largest hedge funds on the planet, right? $120 plus billion dollars. He makes a lot of qualitative judgments about the market or proclamations, that is. So talk to us a little bit about how you've come into this business, if you will, of being a little bit of a pundit here, but also running an investment management company that you're trying to build out. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Last night I was at a awards dinner for Unlimited, got nominated for Asset Manager of the Year by RIA Intel. And someone came up to me and said, oh, you are you're Bob Elliott. You're a celebrity on Twitter. And I was like, celebrity, you've got to be You didn't win, me. did you? That's like the Sports <laughs> Illustrated cover jinx. You didn't no, win. No, okay, no, no. Fidelity won, but uh, oh, they're it, screwed. Was actually, it was in Boston, oh, okay. and, which is where Fidelity's located. Oh, $25,000 uh, table versus the $5,000 table. Oh, no, no, no. They didn't even deem to show up. Oh, okay. Uh, Very like good. Like their hardware. It was so meaningless to yep. them. Um, don't worry if, if for anyone out there, if we win an award, we will show up and collect it. It's interesting. The Twitter, what I could say here is standing here right now, I could tell you a really elegant story about how what we were trying to do at Unlimited is give access to these sophisticated return streams and also give access to folks who, who don't have the ability to get institutional quality research and give them access to the type of insights that institutional investors typically get access to, that this was all by design. I could tell you that, and it would probably sound really good. But the reality is that's not how this happened. My Twitter account started because I just wanted to like basically communicate with some of my old colleagues, friends, things like that, about what I was thinking in markets. And so I just started writing in the morning and in the afternoon, in the evening, here's what I'm thinking about markets, right? Because when you're a market participant, when you're running money, it's not a part-time job. You don't just like casually check out of markets. Like you're constantly sitting there going, 
What do I think is going to happen? What's actually happening with the incremental information? What's happening with market prices? How do those things intersect? And then re recreating your synthesis all the time about what's going on, what's likely to happen, where are there opportunities in markets? And so that's really how that whole, my Twitter is really born. And to be clear, it's basically what it is today, which is every day I basically wake up, look at what's going on in markets, look at the data, look at the market pricing and what's on my mind, which is kind of incredible. Apparently people are, are halfway interested <laughs> in what I have to say, which has been a surprise. But I think it, it does reflect the fact that there's a lot of people out there, particularly like financial advisors or smaller scale investors who don't really have access to institutional quality insights about what's going on in, in the markets in a consistent way, in a data-driven way, all of those things. There's obviously some handful of great commentators that are out there Thank that you. are engaging with people in, the, in those environments like yourselves, but it's hard. It's hard for, say you're an advisor with 500 million bucks in suburban Chicago, like the big banks aren't writing research reports for you right? You don't have access to that quality of insight. And so it's actually been quite remarkable and quite fun, honestly, talking to a lot of these folks who are as sophisticated as anybody in terms of what's going on. So we had Rebecca Patterson on here not too long ago, former coworker of yours. And I feel like all of you now that are coming out of Bridgewater, you couldn't wait to be able to express your opinions. No, I mean that because you guys have acquired a ton of knowledge and you want to share. That's why I go back to, you're writing these, and I read yourself on Twitter, you're writing these things, you're giving your opinion but that's not how you're executing necessarily because you're telling me on one side, it's very quantitative on the stuff and the brand that you're building right now, yet you have such a qualitative aspect to what you want to express. So you attract people, they know you're smart and they know, but my guess would be if I'm investing in your product, I want to invest in you. I want, and you're all you're doing, and I'm not saying it's bad, is following what these hedge funds are doing and the trends, whether you agree with it or not, from what I understand. So you may have a very opinionated look at China, let's say, yet hedge funds decided, and you're negative, and hedge funds decided to overweight China. So you're just going to go against your fundamental belief and do whatever these machines tell you to. I always find that hard to do, just mentally, you know, and people that follow. I used to joke there was a quantitative fund at Front Point and would not look at any research, literally had to follow trends, was following one of the, one of the first guys. So I said to him, I said to him, he was from Israel, and I said, so let me ask you a question. You're short oil. He goes, yes. And I said, what if... I had information that a nuke, God forbid, just got launched out of Iran on the way. I go, you would obviously cover your oil short. Nope. And I said, I don't understand how that works. I go, I'm, I have information for you here, but you're telling me that you're not going to cover the oil, which is going to go to $300 a barrel. He goes, nope, not going to do it. So I always found that very intriguing because the thought would be that's already priced in, right? That's already the market's quote, efficient. I'll go back to what I asked you 10 minutes ago. That is a struggle for you. <laughs> To be able, so you can write what you want to write and get your expression out there, yet the product that you have doesn't necessarily reflect your views. Just talk about that for a second. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And I think, I think for folks who have been in the markets for a long time, at least my experience in the markets, is over time you really recognize just how wrong you can be with your views. As a qualitative Again, investor. thank you, Bob. <laughs> These folks are wrong 45% of the time. <laughs> to be clear, I'm also wrong 45% of the time. It's not, it's still great if you can get the coin slightly in your favor. And so what I'd say is one of the things that you want to do when you're thinking about running money is you want to think about how do you create edge. 
And how do you create durable edge? And then once you figure out how you create durable edge, how do you implement that strategy reliably in order to make sure that you're continually getting that edge? And so in this case, the question is not what are my personal views? The question is how do I create durable edge? And what I believe is a pretty compelling way to create durable edge is by using the wisdom of the crowd of hedge fund managers, right? Because over time, very consistently, that wisdom, that collective wisdom of literally billions and billions of dollars being invested in figuring out how to beat markets generates edge in trading. And so that's what we're really trying to do is to take that edge and make it available to everyone in the CTF form. Now, of course, that can be inconsistent with my own personal views. And part of the strategy, part of the overall dynamic is have some humility about the fact that my personal views can be wrong and are wrong all the time. Like all the time I'm wrong. And so I think that's really important is to recognize like what is and this is for any qualitative investor, any person who's thinking about how do you create a consistent return stream over time, you have to think about how do you create that edge over time? Because it's not just getting one bet right or another bet right. It's about doing that consistently. What we've done here is we figured out an edge relative to the rest of the world. And so that's what we're trying to make available to everyone. Maybe I have edge personally, maybe I don't, but I have a lot more confidence that the wisdom of the crowd of the hedge fund community has edge, then I have confidence in my personal ability to have edge. And that's that's pretty unusual that managers will say that, but I think it's the reality. No, no doubt. All right, so one last question here, Bob. What do you think is conventional qualitative wisdom in the markets right now that the data that you track, okay, on a quantitative basis, it is just it kind of flies in the face of when you think about this market, the stock market that we're in, the S&P is up nearly 12% of the year. NASDAQ 100 is up 32% of the year. We have rates that have really, if you look at the 10 year, is flattened out over the last few months or so. So the volatility has definitely slowed down. We have inflation readings that have been cut in half over the last year. We have crude oil that's down 40 or almost 50% year over year. What are some things that you think, again, like that are universally believed on a qualitative basis, but the quantitative data tells you something different? I think the biggest question is, is whether or not inflation is going to be entrenched. There's a lot of hope that we're going to see a decline in inflation. I was joking today on Twitter that when you look at, you know, break-even inflation pricing in the bond markets, it's been 2%. It's been 2% basically through this whole period, and it's been totally wrong, right? And I joke that it seems like the bankers just typed in hard-coded 2% in their Excel models and have forgotten to think about this problem, right? That inflation can be above what they had long-term expected. And so I think that's really the question that I think is the most important question on everyone's mind, which is, or should be on everyone's mind, which is how do we get inflation down to that 2% and what will it take? And I think what we've seen a lot is whether you look at Europe or the UK, sure, you can have moderating growth. And we're all sitting around here like nitpicking whether we're in recession or not in recession. And I'm going to be pretty clear about it, which is it doesn't matter. Like what matters is how much slack has to occur in the labor market in order to bring inflation down from where it's been recently, which is core at 5% for six months unchanged to where it needs to go, which is 2%. And the answer is a huge weakening of the labor market. And we are so far away from a huge weakening of the labor market. So, you know, the next time somebody's sitting there going, 
I'm looking at, at gross domestic income versus gross domestic product, and we might be slightly negative or might be slightly positive. Recognize that, that is not the question to ask. The question is, how far are we away from durably bringing inflation down? And the answer is a long way. And it's going to take a lot more pain ahead to get there. Okay, Bob Elliott, CEO, CIO, co-founder of Unlimited Funds. Check him out on the Twitter at Bob Unlimited. You can also get his weekly write-up at Unlimited Funds, I think, .com. As you said, Bob, we really appreciate you joining us on the tape. Bob, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.